Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightnin. I'm here with Michael Zarling uh, on our Thirsty Podcast. Uh, and we today are going to cover 2nd and 3rd John in Jude in the New Testament. And then we'll jump for two chapters of Nahum in the Old Testament. Um, so we, we have not covered 1st John yet. We're, we're jumping around a little bit, right? We are. Yeah, so I had a little bit of background for for Second John. Uh, I'm going to guess it's pretty easy to figure out that the author of Second John is John, uh, and uh, general consensus says that he did not die as a martyr like the other apostles did. And he lives to be around uh, to uh, around 90 A.D. And he's an old man, and that's why he refers to himself as the elder. And that could have been an endearing term that the other Christians called him too, kind of like, you know, students at Shoreland call Pastor Lightning, Lightning McQueen. Or uh, the old guy. <laughs> uh, and the content of Second John is not all that different from First John. John is warning the believers against false teachers. And he expresses his joy over those people who had become Christians and were continuing to live as Christians. And he begins his epistle and he addresses it to the chosen lady and her children. Most Bible scholars think this is not an individual lady with children, but rather the chosen lady is the church. And then the children are the the members, the Christians in that church. And really, the message of this book can be summarized that it's a warning uh, not to have anything to do with those who do not teach God's pure word because they will cause you spiritual harm. So don't give aid to false teachers. Uh, I had mentioned this last week, I think, or the week before. Um, yeah, no, that was last week because it was in uh, First Peter where it talked about uh, Peter was addressing fellow elders. And uh, the idea is, in this case, probably by the time John wrote these things, that he was an elderly man. Uh, but that term doesn't have to mean just uh, biological age. Uh, it has behind it the idea of maturity and uh, that you've had some amount of experience more than a, a new believer or a new uh, person entering the Christian faith. And uh, the, these are the people that we want to be leading us, uh, not somebody that is new to the faith or just out of the blue has become a Christian, but somebody who's had some experience. And I think as we talked last week about elder being more closely connected to a pastor today than the elders group we have in our church, if he refers to himself as the elder or kind of the pastor, and maybe he's the bishop overseeing the ministry of the other pastors. For our uh, Wisconsin Synod uh, listeners, you might uh, call this type of a person a district president or a circuit pastor. It's a, it's a pastor, but it's also a pastor who has oversight over a group of pastors. And whatever title or term you use with it, um, this is a good and God-pleasing thing. Um, as I uh, look down the chapter, it's just the, the, all three of these books that we're covering, 2nd, 3rd, John, and Jude, uh, are all just one chapter long, and uh, th there are several things that we could talk about in each of them. Um, 
One of them is that, uh, as Pastor Zarling mentioned, there are many deceivers, and John is warning against those deceivers. Um, And I think it's good to see in verse 7 and uh, verse 8 that, well, actually, it's just verse 7, excuse me, that he calls the deceivers an, an antichrist. And so, don't let that confuse you. When we went through Second Thessalonians, uh, we said that this is a very clear prediction of the Antichrist, the great false teacher within God's church that uh, you can recognize as the, uh, you, you, you should recognize as the uh, office of the Roman Catholic papacy. But there are also other Antichrists, uh, maybe with a lowercase a, uh, that uh, are denying that Jesus has come in the flesh, and they don't have to be that vulg- that uh, coarse about it or that f- uh, forward about it. They don't have to outright say Jesus did not come in the flesh. Uh, it could be something as simple as um, Jesus uh, Jesus did most of the work, or Jesus did almost all the work, but now you have to decide. Uh, to become a believer, and and that really ends up being the same as saying it doesn't matter whether Jesus came in the flesh or not, uh, and that is an antichrist. And antichrist is against the truth, and John mentions the truth a number of times in the first four verses. Uh, what is truth? Uh, the truth is something spoken of as living, uh, living in the believers to whom John is writing, and. There's a lot of anti-truths today, one of them being gender fluidity, fluidity, because uh, that's really the current truth for the least the last five minutes. Uh, I watched a TikTok video uh, of a young person sen- saying that she was gender fluid, that it changed by the week or the day or even the hour. Uh, she wears different color bracelets to tell people what her pronoun, pronouns are that day. Pink for she, her. Blue for him, her. Yellow means they, them. And then at times she'll mix up the colors and maybe she's a he, them that day. But this is the time that we're living in. This is the time we're raising our children in. Public schools, the government, even churches have accepted this new narcissistic theology. And that's why I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity, take your children out of public schools, turn off the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon, get your family into the Bible in church and at home. That's so vitally important because that's the only truth there is in a culture that is all about anti-truth. The way that you put it was so... uh such a good way to say it, a, a theology of selfishness, um, because I just think for myself, let's pretend like I want to be, I or I am, let's pretend like I am gender fluid and that I have these different bracelets, like you said, to uh, let people know. Uh, that at least is being a little bit polite and nice to let people know what your what your pronouns are. Uh, but I'm, I'm asking the all the other people in the world to um, set aside whatever their perceptions of gender are and to use my perception of gender for myself to um, to address me or to interact with me and uh, if if I would do that just from my own perspective 
I would have to think that that is very selfish of me to uh, put this uh, re- assignment on everybody else in society just 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 for my own sake. Um, I wanted to ask, and maybe this ties into it. Uh, what do you make of verse nine, where he talks about those? John says that they are the ones who do not remain in the teaching of Christ and do not have God. And he starts by calling them those who go on ahead. Like, what what is that? What is that uh, raise in your mind as far as um, how do you how do you how do you think of false teachers as people who go on ahead? Yeah. So th- I think what it's talking about there is that uh, the false teachers were implying that the Gospel of John and other apostles was too simple. And they needed to be amplified with something higher or advanced, uh, something that went ahead. Uh, And I think these words can be applied to people who do not remain in the teaching of Christ, Uh, whether it's the teaching about Christ or the teaching that Christ gave, depending on the way you translate those those words. Uh, But I think that's what it means. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, I... I don't know if I would have said anything different, just the idea that, um, uh, hey, yeah, this Jesus thing is great, but uh, let's keep moving. Let's keep pushing forward and and learn new and different things uh, when uh, Christ has already revealed all of the truth that he says is necessary for eternal life. And then with verses 7 through 11, I wanted to talk a little bit about that false teaching. So I took my third daughter, Lydia, on a college tour on Tuesday. And uh, the university was built 150 or more years ago as a Presbyterian college. They have a chapel on college. And it's nice as they set aside 20 minutes three times a week during the morning for chapel. There's nothing else going on on the campus so the students can go to the chapel. And as I was listening to the tour guide, uh, who's one of the coaches there, and he was talking uh, to us about the chapel and promoting it. Uh, I was looking at the stained glass windows, and they they were about the academics that were, they were teaching there. And I'm assuming four of the windows had to do with maybe Presbyterian saints or theologians and so forth. And then one simple cross on a banner in the front. That was it to tell it was a church. So that raised some red flags with me and talking with Lydia later, she was actually listening to our guide and she noticed that he had said there were three chaplains and one of them was a female. Uh, And so we were very polite with the tour guide, but she's not going to the chapel. Uh, She's not going to the churches there. I just talked to the uh, pastor. uh, It's about 25 minutes away and has a campus ministry at a different university. So she'll be driving 25 to 30 minutes for church and for campus ministry. Uh, And that's where I encourage all of you. I did this with my other daughters is when they went away to school, we had all kinds of tabs open up. Uh, Do they have the sports they were looking for or ROTC, the uh, the classes they were looking for. And was there a Wells Church there with a campus ministry? Uh, because if the kids are not active in their faith, there are the devil is going to be working through the other students, 
and the professors, uh, all the things that are going on in our culture to pull our students away. And it only takes a handful of years and then our child is gone. And I think that's why John writes so strongly about false teachings. He, he does much of the same thing in Third John, uh, so we may as well uh, move on to that. Um, it just kind of struck me when you said uh, Presbyterian that uh, that's actually the Greek word for elder is pres- presbyteros, uh, that uh, they're a church body that relies very heavily on the idea of apostolic succession, that um, uh, you, you have to have the hands laid on by somebody who had their hands laid on by somebody who had their hands laid on all the way back to the apostles. Um, and uh, uh, that that's, I, I don't know why that just struck me when you said Presbyterian, and because, the, we're, we're, because you know the Greek better than the rest of us. We're reading, we're reading John the Elder. That would be the word presbyteros there. So, a little background on Second John is written by John, and it, so we're on Third John. Third John, you're right. Third John. So it was Third John uh, that John wrote this also, but now this is written to dear Gaius. We're not really sure who Gaius is, but. It seems to be that John is expressing joy that Gaius is one of his children, a convert to Christianity. Verse 5, he continues to walk in the truth. And he writes especially to praise Gaius for the generous support he's giving to the traveling missionaries who are going about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But John also promises to deal with diatrophies who is not only disparaging John, but also trying to exclude from the congregation members who are giving help to these traveling missionaries. Now, uh, you and I have our moments of disagreement from time to time, so I think we should flip a coin on this. Do you, do you have a coin? I do not. Well, see, if, you, if I hadn't heard you say it out loud I, and I was the first one to talk, I would have said Gaius. All right, we'll go with Gaius. Do you want to do that? Yeah. Okay. It doesn't make a difference to me, but uh, in verse two, I think that um, uh, it it's neat to see that a lot of times people accuse the church of being only concerned about the next life and not at all being concerned about people's bodily problems, or at least not enough concerned. Uh, and uh, here in verse two. Uh, John right away says, I pray that you are doing well in every way and that you have good health. Uh, And then he goes on to say, that's not spiritual health he's talking about because he goes on to say, just as your soul is doing well. Um, And so I think it's, it's a good message to send that believers in general and the church in particular, we aren't unconcerned about people's bodily health. And I know, Jeremy, you and I have talked a little bit about church fellowship over these podcasts. And a lot of times when people view church fellowship, it's a negative thing. This is what we cannot do. Stay away from. Yeah. yeah. We're avoiding false teachers. And John certainly talks about that in uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But there's also a positive aspect to church fellowship is, is... And that is uh, working together for the truth, supporting the church's workers as they preach and teach the word. So when I teach the doctrine of fellowship in my adult confirmation class, I'll talk about the positive side of church fellowship. And I'll pull up the Wells 
www.campusministries.net and go to the church locator like I did today for Campus Ministry. And I'll show these new converts, hey, when you go on vacation or you move somewhere or uh, whatever it is, here, use this wells.net church locator and find a church near you. Worship there. And talking about mission work, I'm going to give an unpaid commercial for our board for missions. And I really want to encourage all of you to take part of this. Uh, please join us for the Taste of Missions, which is an online missions experience July 11th through 17th. You get to know more about Wells home and world missionaries like you never have before and experience mission work firsthand through short video updates live question and answer sessions, activities, and recipes for the entire family. There's also daily devotions, live worship services. There's also going to be commissioning of new missionaries on July 17th. And there's no cost. Uh, you can go to tasteofmissions.com. So grab your family, your friends, neighbors to participate with these videos and activities during Taste of Missions. And then uh, as you are not only supporting mission work in your church and your school with your offerings, you can support home and world missions with this, just like Gaius. Uh, the um, second half of the letter uh, dives into the uh, issue that uh, Pastor Zarling mentioned about. Uh, now, how did you say his name? I'll let you say it. Did I? No, I liked I liked the way you said it. I just oh, forgot. Diatrophies. Diatrophies. Uh, there. Uh, so di- diatrophies um, seems to be uh, an opponent of John and the apostolic teaching. Um, and what is interesting when you compare it with Second John is that again you have that description of false teachers as wanting to be out in front, wanting to be uh, uh, sort of leading the way or uh, uh, forging new ground, new territory, uh, but really it is leading away from God's truth. Uh, but the way that in Third John uh, the apostle writes it is. Diotrephes, who loves to be first. Uh, he calls it that instead of like in Second John saying uh, to go on ahead. Um, but uh, what are some of the things that you notice about uh, Diotrephes and his methods? Well, what I was thinking with Diotrephes is, sadly, I've experienced the attitude of Diotrephes in mission work. Uh, you're the German guy. What would be the English equivalent of Hair Pasteur. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Pastor, or, or you could even say Lord Pastor. Yeah, so that's the description of a number of pastors that have been mentioned to me, of the Hair Pasteur, like you said, the, the Mr. Pastor, uh, that there are pastors and church leaders that I've met that become territorial. They don't want to share their ministries with uh, another nearby church. They're afraid that this new church or outreach effort in their community might take away some of their members or monies or ministries. So instead of celebrating the unity like Gaius, they create disunity like Diotrephes. They don't want new ideas. uh, And it's that hair posture. It's the top down mentality of the church, of the pastor telling the people of the church what to do instead of the bottom up where God's people are 
uh, asking the pastor, this is where we think we want to be going. And it has, I suppose, in defense of some of those uh, old time Germans that there, there is a positive way to say it that out of reverence or out of out of love and affection for your pastor, you call him Herr Pastor, uh, but um, uh, it's certainly and very easily and very often, especially in our American context, it would morph into something ugly that was really sort of a, a pastor. That, that I never that never struck me until I just translated it for you now. Mister Hare can be Mister, but it can also be Lord, and uh, that it, it's you're used for the Lord Jesus Herr Jesus, but uh, that would that would not be a good way to be referring to or thinking of your pastor. He's not your Lord. Your Lord is the good shepherd. Right. That's what I have on Second John, if you have anything else. I did have one other thing. Right. Uh, and it's mentioned in both second and third, so I wanted to save it until now. And uh, it is that in both cases, um, he says at the end of the letter that he has many things to write, but he does not want to use pen and ink to do it. And... Um, I hope you won't think that I'm one of those uh, crotchety, stodgy old hair pastors for for saying this, but uh, I think that does say something about the technology or the the methods or means that we use to send our messages. Um, uh, I've heard this uh, passage used, and I think it has some strong uh, clout to it when it comes to the decision about whether or not to use screens in church. Uh, but I also think it has a lot to say about uh, online church or uh, whether you send a message to somebody through email or through text or through face-to-face contact or through written pen and ink contact. Or, or a podcast. Or a po- Yeah, very absolutely. The, the way that you choose to send your message does send a message in itself. And, and so we can't pretend like, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's, it's the same whether it's uh, uh, online or whether it's in person or whether it's written or what. No, the, yeah, every way of uh, communicating also sends a message uh, in addition to the words that are written. And uh, that John is kind of saying that here when he says, I don't want to use pen and ink uh, to send my message. I'd like to do it in person. Right. And so I just had a conversation last night and this morning about the possibility of working with the church uh, that might be a restart. So we'd be closing it and then reopening it brand new, uh, do new mission work and so forth. And yeah, I'm going to go down there and be in person so that there's a face that this congregation who doesn't know anything about the Wisconsin Synod rather than a phone call or written. And I think that's a good point is uh, as we think of becoming closer and closer together with the phone technology, computer technology, and so forth, we're actually farther and farther away from each other. And it, I, I mentioned it with the screen before, and uh, I don't want my co-host to think I'm picking on our church because we, we do have a screen. I think uh, it's, it's, it's well done and, and there's, it's, it's a good use. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is for those uh, congregations that don't yet have that, don't assume that this has to be the way that you go in the future, that uh, you're, you're going to be behind the times if you don't, if you don't put a screen up. Uh, because like I said, the, the technology or the, the means or method that you use to send a message in and of itself also sends a message. Then let's get into Jude. 
So Jude or Judas is the half brother of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Hair Jesus, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he identifies himself in the first verse as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, so this is very, uh, Jude is very similar to second Peter chapter two. So a lot of people believe that Peter wrote and then Jude took it. And then he wrote something very similar because they're both dealing with false teachers that Peter seems to be writing about the false teachers that he sees coming on the horizon and then Jude is writing, saying they're here, uh, that Peter's prophecies were fulfilled. Uh, there's a line in verse three that I think is uh, worth committing to memory, if not the whole thing, at least the one part of it, uh, when he talks about uh, to continue to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. Um, that, that's an important thing to think of, that uh, the Christian faith, yes, you do need to take personal ownership of it. And without personal faith and personal ownership of, of believing Jesus in Jesus for forgiveness, you will not be saved. Uh, but at the same time, you're not the only uh, saint that has ever existed. And uh, modern Americans... Uh, in 2021 are not the only saints that have ever uh, existed. Uh, so let's remember as we pass on our faith from generation to generation that uh, that we should honor the, the memory of those who have gone before and uh, remember that this was handed down to us through many different uh, contexts and, and through, through much uh, tradition and uh, a, a lot of... Uh, uh, thousands of years worth of uh, people that have contributed to what we now today have as Christianity. And that word contend, that you're, you're contending, you're fighting for the faith. And that's so important today. And like you said, you're not doing it by yourself. Too often, I think Christians see their Christianity as a vacuum, uh, as something they're doing by themselves. They can do in front of their computer screen at home. But that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is working alongside, fighting alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and because there is so much false doctrine out there, you need to make your faith not just a simple add-on. I was thinking about that this morning on my bike ride, that so often uh, we think of faith as just something else we do. You know, maybe we... You know, Sunday morning, and maybe we add on the Bible study. Maybe there's an extra Bible study, a podcast like this. But our faith needs to be the whole thing. Everything else we do is kind of the add-on. And so get involved. Uh, find Bible study during the summer. Keep listening to podcasts. Teach your children apologetics. And in those ways, you're fighting, you're contending for your faith. Maybe one way that you could do that is uh, the interesting little comment that Jude makes in verses 8 and 9. Uh, he describes this very mysterious uh, exchange between the archangel Michael and the devil. And uh, it's, he says they were having an argument about the body of Moses. Um, I always think of this when we discuss the transfiguration, that uh, Elijah was taken up into heaven without 
bodily death. And then here you have in Jude a mention of something happening with Moses's body. Was it resurrected before the last day? Was was there some kind of a burial issue that they were arguing about? Jude doesn't tell us, uh, but it's kind of interesting to think of. And uh, Pastor Zarling just mentioned um, teaching and training your kids and making your faith a part of your everyday life and not just your uh, a Sunday morning or midweek uh, worship life. Um, so maybe uh, one thing that you could do is take a verse like this and think, when somebody says something blasphemous, how should I react to it? And what you see here is that uh, Jude says, here's what the Archangel Michael did when uh, the devil said something blasphemous. The Archangel Michael didn't uh, take it personally or get upset about it. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. And and maybe that's a way then that you can handle uh, people who say uh, unsavory or, or vulgar things. Uh, you don't have to take it personally or get uh, upset and, and sputter and fire fight fire with fire. You can uh, f- follow this verse and say to somebody, the Lord rebuke you. Right. And that's his example of using Michael, is that Michael dealt with Satan uh, in humility. And it's interesting in verse 8, he says that these dreamers are defiling the flesh, despising authority, and blaspheming glorious ones. And that glorious ones are not only the good angels, but also the fallen angels, as they are still majestic creatures before God. Uh, so the unbelievable arrogance of the immoral teachers is that they don't hesitate in saying defaming things about the powerful creatures of God uh, who are far above them. Uh, they're deluded enough to think that they're using Satan when in reality, Satan is using them. So think of any villain in a movie that uses black magic. So the one that came to mind is... Uh, Dr. Facilier. Do you know who that is? No <laughs> clue. Uh, no he, clue. He is the witch doctor in Disney's The Princess and the Frog. I've got girls. You've got boys. Oh, okay. Your, your boys aren't going to watch The Princess and the Frog. Nope. Nope. But the witch doctor uh, uses black magic to turn Tiana. Does he have a top hat? Yes. Okay. I yeah. think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So he uses black ma- magic to turn Tiana and Prince Naveen into frogs. And then Naveen's valet, Lawrence, into looking like Naveen. But in the end, when the witch doctor cannot pay his debts to the spirit world, the voodoo spirits drag Dr. Facilier into the spirit world. So the the reason I bring that in is I warn my kids all the time when we're studying the second commandment about messing around with the devil, whether it's... uh, uh, Ouija boards or Charlie Charlie or any kind of lame games that they find, they're all ways of playing around with the devil. And then they think they're playing around with the devil, but the devil's really going to be playing around with them. Absolutely. Um, And what uh, just strikes me is I kind of let my eyes skim over these verses. Uh, And and whenever you think of... um, sort of the watered down version uh, that you see, you might see on TV or uh, on the internet of Christianity when it comes to the, um, uh, yeah, just American evangelicalism. um, A lot of times you'll, you'll hear 
that uh, th- that people don't want to be judgmental and that they can still be Christian and they can still be uh, uh, followers of Jesus without really being confrontational. Um, as I think about that, look at verses 10 all the way through verse 16. Um, those are a whole bunch of verses in which Jude makes uh, several different comparisons of, uh, well, I guess you could even include verse eight, what we were just talking about before and, and even before that. Uh, these are a whole lot of verses in which he is making analogies or comparisons to give you a picture of what false teachers are like. And uh, that's not very uh, uh, user-friendly or that's not very politically correct. Um, but this is what the faith handed down for all time, once and for all, uh, of Christianity is. Uh, it's saying you don't want any part of false teaching uh, because these are, are like autumn trees without fruit. Uh, they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved for eternity. Um, there's this prediction from uh, Enoch about them. Uh, it, just a whole lot of descriptions and warnings about false teachers that uh, makes me say, if, if this is God's word, and I believe it is, uh, if you believe this is God's word, uh, then why aren't there more of us talking this way today? Yeah, exactly. I I think people don't realize what's out there. What was out there in James' time, in Jude's time, in Peter's time, and what's out there today. There is a lot of false teachings, and like uh, Jude now, so eloquently puts it in these triads. A triad is three statements. Uh, you know, that's the way I like to preach, having three examples. And he, he does it over and over again throughout here. Uh, and so he preaches very strongly against the false teachers. But then right at the end, verses 20 and 21, he says, But you, dear friends, continue to build yourselves up in your most holy faith as you keep praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you continue to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which results in eternal life. Really, he's talking there about word and sacraments, to be in worship. Uh, You need to be uh, partaking of the Lord's body and blood. You can't get that through a computer screen. You need to be confessing your sins. You need to be hearing the words of absolution. You need to be remembering your baptism. You need to hear God's word uh, so it goes into your ears, comes out of your mouth, filters into your mind and into your heart. And in these ways, you're building yourselves up. The One last thought on Jude, and that is uh, in verse 19. These are the people who cause divisions. And it kind of makes me think of that's that's really... That's really what false teaching is, is it's, it's making more divisions. And then uh, people who point out the fact that there are divisions, uh, those are the ones who are accused of creating divisions. Uh, no, we're not creating divisions. We're simply pointing out that they're already there. And I think let's also remember, like you said, the positive side of fellowship so that when we have shared ministry or when we have uh, a, a unified front of uh, people drawing, br- bring being brought together to spread the gospel, uh, that that is the opposite of false teaching. And then to think about what happens when you step out of your comfort zone and share Christ with someone else. So uh, last weekend and the weekend before, our congregation put 
uh, sticky note flyers of our new congregation because we've pr- been promoting ourselves on these podcasts as coming from Water of Life. Well, last Sunday was the last Sunday of Epiphany and New Hope. And this Sunday, we're celebrating the grand opening of Water of Life Lutheran Church, one church in two locations in West Racine and North Racine or Caledonia. And so we put this flyer on the on a door and two people from the neighborhood came to the church just because they said, hey, I got this flyer on the door. And what happens if they, they hear God's word, they're converted, they become members and so forth, and they continue to remain in the faith? Jude says, verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is awesome stuff that you get to take part in when you're active in sharing your faith, when you're using your offerings, when you're supporting Taste of Missions, you're snatching others out of eternal hellfire. As we jump to the Old Testament, we'll look at the first two chapters of Nahum. And uh, this is a book uh, of prophecy that God directed against the kingdom of Assyria, and the capital of Assyria would be Nineveh. And uh, it's going to sound very harsh and uh, very angry because God is not in a good mood, but uh, it's still good news because God is angry. He's, he's in a bad mood toward his people's enemies. And uh, that's good news when you're his people. Um, so uh, what, what did you want to say about uh, Nahum? So Nahum is interesting in that his name means in Hebrew, comforter. And yet the message is three short chapters and it's horrifying judgment. And like you said, it's directed toward Assyria. And it was natural for the nation of Judah to dread Assyria because the Assyrians were powerful, cruel, ruthless. That's why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Uh, Assyria had oppressed the whole Near East for more than a century. Uh, And then they were the ones that God had used to carry away the northern kingdom of Israel. They were coming. uh, Assyria was coming for the southern kingdom of Judah through the cruel king Sennacherib, the founder of Nineveh, and he nearly destroyed Judah in 701 BC, but that's when the Lord sent an angel of the Lord that saved Jerusalem by striking down, I think it was like 180,000 soldiers in one night. So for more than a century, Judah has been reduced to the status of a client state of Assyria. Uh, And so now... God is going to bring, promise his judgment upon this Assyrian nation through Nahum. Uh, I was telling Pastor Zarling before we started recording that uh, it, it was a year or two ago that I was preaching a sermon series in my parish on Old Testament prophets, and uh, I was remembering some things from that uh, about the prophet Nahum, and it just struck me, one of the things I remembered saying now is... Um, it would be good if we identified ourselves with God's people because by faith, the Christian church today is the new Israel. Um, at the same time, uh, you could also say to yourself, well, what today is the superpower of the whole world? Uh, what is the uh, country that there are a lot of other countries that kind of uh, maybe fear or um, uh, are, are resentful toward um, and uh 
I thought, what if today, instead of saying Assyria, the prophet Nahum would be preaching against America? And instead of Nineveh, what if it was Washington, D.C.? Um, because it, there, when you read the descriptions in these two chapters of Assyria and her people and her armies, um, it, it sounds a lot like a pretty self-assured uh Empire, a pretty self-assured uh, kingdom or, or nation, and uh, that that is uh, something that is not of great value in God's sight. And the Lord describes Himself in verse two: the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. And oftentimes we use the word jealousy as being self-centered and petty, uh, and the same thing with vengeance. And yet, that's not the way God describes Himself. Uh, being jealous is an expression of his zealous concern for the welfare of those whom he loves. Being an avenging God is he brings about just retribution for those who violate his law. And I think of uh, my wife and my daughters, I am jealous for their love. I am protective of them as an avenging husband and, and father. And that's the way God is. And that's, that's the picture you need to have is that we are, hopefully, uh, Judah, we are Israel of, uh, in this prophecy, and God is protecting us from God's enemies because, like Jeremy said, we definitely don't want to be on the enemy side because this is some pretty scary stuff that God's going to do to Nineveh and the whole nation of Assyria. Yeah, he's he's jealous in the sense that he takes it personally when uh, people are unfaithful to him. He he's, he doesn't like being cheated on. Um, but uh, he, already by the end of chapter one, um, you have that uh, picture from Isaiah in uh, chapter one, verse 15. Uh, Isaiah talks this way too, but uh, Nahum picks it up as well. Uh, he talks about a herald coming over the mountains to br- proclaim this good news. Uh, peace, celebrate your sacred festivals, Judah. Um, you can you can worship your God in peace. You can have parties. Uh, you can you can have fellowship with each other and enjoy each other's company. Uh, here comes here comes that messenger. He's running over the mountain because he's seen the battle lines and he has seen that uh, God has defeated Israel's enemies. Yeah. So God used Nineveh to punish his people for their sins, but once. Uh, God was finished with them, then what is God going to do because they have been so cruel to his people? Well, he's going to wipe them out. That's what the three chapters of Nahum are about. But like he says in verse 15, uh, after he punishes and destroys the Ninevites, he would send heralds to preach the good news to his people because no longer are they going to be harassed by their enemies. God's people are going to be able to worship him forever. Uh, in chapter two, I came across a verse that um, is kind of meaningful for me uh, for a sort of a silly reason, but maybe it goes back to what we were saying about uh, the book of Jude and and first, uh, second and third John, um, why it's so important to watch out for false teachers, even false teachers that say a lot of good biblical things. Uh, here's why. 
Um, I went to visit a, a dear old woman once who's now gone on to glory, and uh, she was reading Nahum chapter 2 uh, and looking at verse 4, and she uh, had been reading in some commentary that was not from a Lutheran background. It was uh, a commentary written by some kind of non-denominational or uh, American evangelical uh, uh, publishing company. And uh, what it said was that uh, verse 4 is actually a prediction of um, modern automobiles. Oh my goodness. So uh, the chariots race wildly through the streets. They rush back and forth in the city squares. They look like lightning. They dart about like flashes of lightning. And I suppose... I suppose if you look at modern traffic, you would say that kind of sounds like a prediction of automobiles. Uh, But in the context of this whole um, uh, attacking and and taking down of the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, uh, that's not not what God is predicting here. And uh, yet again, that's, that's another good reason to watch out for false prophets. Verses 3 through 10. God is describing the city of Nineveh. So Nineveh was a powerful city protected by a double set of walls. The inner wall was eight miles long, 100 feet high, 50 feet wide, wide enough for three chariots, not three automobiles, but three chariots to be driven uh, next to each other on the road on top of the wall. So picture that in your mind's eye and you imagine how big this is, you know, like a three-lane highway Uh, on top of the wall. And then a dam on the Coast River, uh, which flowed through the city, created a reservoir that provided the city with water. But Nineveh's destruction, it it must have sounded impossible. It's a huge city, three days to walk across, we learn from Jonah. Uh, And then it's got this double wall, it's, it's got water and everything it needs. But in 612 BC, the city fell. Nahum's prediction that the city would collapse as the river gates are thrown open uh, confirmed that it looks like what the Babylonians did is they direct they directed that water so that it then uh, created a flood and crushed the the walls, and so the Babylonians could come in and attack and destroy the city of Nineveh. So the Ninevites or the the Assyrians built this reservoir as a defensive measure that would uh, be like kind of like a moat to stop the the onslaught, uh, basically, I think is what you're saying. And uh, and the Babylonians who were doing the attacking or the besieging of the city redirected it and it washed away the like the foundation or something, right. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, interesting uh, history there. Uh, prediction. It really predict. There is a prediction of God's word coming true uh, that does fit the context. Um, the only other thing I had on chapter two was just a little bit of a discussion about the uh, lion, uh, the lioness, and the lion cubs at the end of the chapter, and. Uh, a lot of countries, uh, maybe more recently, you can think of Great Britain, uh, but uh, other other countries throughout history have used a lion sort of as a mascot or a symbol of their power. And uh, the Assyrians were no different. Uh, they sort of identified themselves as as lions that that ruled the whole jungle of humanity. Um, and 
and, and God says, well, you may be that uh, strong, powerful lion right now, but uh, I'm going to rob your cubs of their food and uh, your mate of, 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 it, of her meat, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slaughter the lions, is what God is saying. And uh, I suppose you could make the application to the uh, devil being like a prowling lion uh, seeking someone to devour, and that uh, God makes a promise here that uh, he will destroy all his people's enemies. Uh, and finally, and most importantly, through Christ's death and resurrection, he has destroyed death and the devil itself. Yeah, and that's the key. He says in verse 15, beware, exclamation point, I am against you, declares the Lord of armies, uh, that 200 years after Nineveh's fall, the Greek historian Xenophon stood on the site of that great city, but he didn't even realize it was there because there was nothing left of it. So what does that tell us about God's word? You said that, that God's word is true. It uh, Nineveh was destroyed just as God said it would be. His word is trustworthy. His promises cannot be broken. His enemies will be defeated and laid bare. And that's the comfort that you and I as Christians can take from Nahum's prophecy is we do not need to be worried or stressed about the persecution we are facing or, as I've said before, is coming. We just wait it out. Because God has promised throughout scriptures that the gates of Hades will not overpower God's kingdom. And when we get to the book of Revelation, that's what it's all about. That Jesus is victorious on his throne. His saints and his angels are there. They're standing triumphant, just like Nahum's prophecy of Nineveh. Anything else you want to bring up? I'm all set. Right Next week, we'll end our study of Nahum. And then we're going to spend much of the summer in Rome as we're going to be studying St. Paul's epistle to the Christians living in the city and territory of Rome. And as, a, as Jeremy and I were talking about before we started recording the podcast, I heard another pastor say this about when people say, well, I'm going to read through the whole Bible and then they get stuck because there's always a place or two they're going to get stuck. And he said, don't read through the whole Bible. Read through, he'll say, different Gospels. And then he said, read Romans. And then when he finished read, reading Romans, read it again. Because there's so much doctrine there. Uh, so this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Lighten and Fast. Uh, stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.